Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Aquarium Co-op. Aquarium Co-op is your one-stop shop for premium aquarium products to keep all your wet pets happy. Pick up top quality foods like Extreme Krill Flakes, Hikari Viber Bites, or Aquarium Co-op Small Fish and Fry Food. And as always, Aquarium Co-op stocks a wide range of healthy and vibrant plants to add a splash of color and natural filtration to any aquarium. So head on over to www.aquariumcoop.com and check out all the goodies for yourself. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Friday, July 30th, 2021. My guests today are Rosario Lacourt and Joe Ferdenzi. This is round two of Tropical Fish History, part two, I guess. Well, this is part two of round two. Yeah, that's goofy. We're going to keep it in. So Rosario and Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Randy. Yeah, no problem. I should say uh, welcome back to the podcast is what I should say. So yeah, uh, gentlemen, there has been no other guest on the podcast since you and I or uh, the three of us last spoke. Um, I wanted to get the, a little bit of variety in there and not have it just be you know back to back this this oral history, but um, I'm lazy. I'm bad at my job. I didn't do that. So we're just going to have another fantastic session with uh, Rosario and Joe. And uh, I think maybe where last time Joe kind of uh, you know threw it out there as a uh, possible topic, but you know, letting letting the audience know, reminding myself that Rosario, you have tremendous experience with uh, with kerosens, with tetras, and in particular, one that I would love to talk about and just really unpack and understand and know more about is the um, the rainbow tetra that's named after you, so Nema tabricon lacordii. Um, so I've got a couple web pages pulled up on that, but hearing it straight from you. And then also at some point, whether you want to lead in with this or conclude with it, but, uh, sharing some wonderful, wonderful stories about, uh, about Jeannie, about your wife and, you know, who has been a behind the scenes player and just making it so that, um, you know, we have all these awesome stories, right. To, um, you know, do, right. do the wonderful things that she's done that, I don't want to tease any more about it. I don't. I don't know what you're going to share, but I'm sure it's going to be some really, really cool stories about how she's just been very selfless, um, and you know, let you do the things that you did to you know, kind of build your reputation in the hobby and your experience. So that will be my few minute spiel, gentlemen. I will uh, turn the hot mic over to you. Okay, you want to go first, Joe, or you want me to go first? No, no, you, 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 you know, you talk. You, you, you know, like Randy said. You, you should. I'm interested in hearing, for example, what was like the first tetra you bred, and then tell us about how it came to be your experiences with the Emperor Tetra, and how one of them came to be named after you. I mean, I, I of course know these stories <laughs> already, but I like that. But I, I want you to tell the audience. Yeah, well, uh, you know, actually, the first, believe it or not, one of the first tetras I bred. And uh, it's kind of ironic because it was the time of of the hobbyist uh, uh, richness uh, when we be- began way back when. So I've been in a hobby. Uh, well, you know, uh, just to let the audience know, I'll be 93 in March. Uh, my my voice feels a lot stronger today than it did uh, when we made the other podcast a few weeks ago. And I think it was kind of on a rough side. But uh, it might have caught me on a wrong day, but my throat is kind of okay now, and I feel kind of strong. By the way, last night, for the heck of it, I listened to podcast, what is it, podcast 35, Randy, is the first one. Is that one the one where you, I kidnapped you into the hotel room? Yeah, that was, <laughs> pod, pod, that was podcast 35, wasn't it? I th- yeah. it was it was a while ago, yeah. When uh, when you just yeah. took yeah, you was, trusted Joe's yeah. recommendation to follow <laughs> to let me steal you from yeah. an event for an hour and a half. Yeah, well, I listened to it the whole thing last night again. I said, "Gee, that's not bad." <laughs> I said, "I should really." It, it came out pretty good. I was impressed with. It. I said, "Really, I should instruct any of those people out there in the fish world that haven't heard it that the podcast is available." And you should listen to it. There was some pretty good oral history there that you may have missed. And if you missed it, it's the second time around. It's even entertaining because you may have fell asleep on the first round. So you woke up now and you're wide awake and you can listen to episode 35. Anyway, I listened to it and I, I said, yeah, not, not bad, not bad. <laughs> so anyway, I thought I thought I would talk a little bit about my wife because 
and, and this is not a it's it's very much related to fish and i know uh i don't want to be sound like a braggart but i'm i'm kind of proud of her and uh she's always been my best buddy and always encouraged me to do stuff uh with in, in relation to fish she never interfered with the hobby and that's really really something because don't forget we had five kids and it wasn't easy for her. She did a lot of the work. And when I went to a fish meeting, and a lot of wives may not like this when I say this, I used to belong to several fish clubs, and she attended a number of them with me, and I always enjoyed her to go along with us because she made a lot of friends with her. In those days, in the early 50s and even into the 60s, a lot of wives attended because it was a night out for them, and she got to be very good friends with a lot of these wives. And uh, so, but she would always have my clothes pressed, my my pants were on a bed all straightened out, my shirt was hanging nice, and she'd always make sure I dressed very nicely and I looked presentable. She didn't like me to look like a, a bozo. And, uh, and so uh, she was always very uh, attentive to my needs. And she even, get a load of this guy, she even polished my shoes which I, wow. I do myself, but I mean, that's the kind of a person she was. She was very selfless, and you could say, well, what'd you do for her? Well, a lot of times, I used to go up to Broad Street, which was the main section of town, and I'd have a couple bucks in my pocket, and I would go and buy a, uh, an outfit for her. I, there was a particular store up there which had very nice clothing for women. Now, now when you say Broad Street, do you mean in Elizabeth? Yeah, in Lisbon, that's where Elizabeth, I met my New wife. Jersey. Right, yeah, right, okay. in Lisbon, New Jersey. That's the that was a shopping district in in uh, in Elizabeth. So, see now here I'm, t- I'm bragging about my wife. Guess what she did? She just put a couple of candy balls in front of the chair to make sure my throat doesn't get dry. <laughs> She's opening up so I have one. See, that's what happens when you've been married for seventy years in in November, and she's still she's still a great gal. She's still beautiful, yet at her at her age, she looks she's ninety years old. But if you saw her, you would never think so. Joe will attest to that. That's yes, awesome. Absolutely. Anyway, she's a uh, sweetheart. Yeah. Anyway, I I used to go up there and buy her clothes, and I'd come back and she says, "What's the present for?" As well, I just felt like you're getting something. I says, "Because it's going to make you happy." So that's what I used to do, and uh, if I made a a couple of bucks on the side and I was able to treat her to a nice outfit and she always looked great in the new outfits and uh, I'm going to try one of these candies I hope I don't choke on it let me see what happens <laughs> anyway I'm going to be bouncing oh it's a root beer one what do you think of that so anyway this I'm going to tell you some of the stories that occurred which I think are kind of humorous and uh, first of all she, she would feed the fish if I had to go somewhere and I had a speaking engagement and she would never fly. So a lot of the places that I went to, uh, I, I needed to fly there, like Texas. I've been out to California a couple of times, Chicago, Cleveland, up to New England. In New England, we drove, and one time we drove as far as Detroit, Michigan with two other couples. And we had a great time. But anyway... She would not fly because when we got married, I said, you got to fly. We got to go to Miami Beach. We'll go for a honeymoon there. And, of course, I'm an old fly boy, so I got a lot of flying time in B-29 bombers. And she wouldn't fly. I said, it's not bad, hon. Come on, we'll try it. Wait, you mean to tell me she wouldn't go in a B-29 bomber? Well, <laughs> no, <laughs> I didn't have one. No, I didn't have one available for her. But anyway... It was the old C-47s, which were the cargo planes in the old days. And I think the original model was built in 1932, if my memory serves me correctly. It was a workhorse of the Air Army Air Corps and a lot of paratroopers. You may have seen paratroopers jumping out of them during World War II. That was a C-47. Anyway, I think they're, they're DC-3s, I believe. I'm not sure because I know, I know the... Have the uh, Air Corps uh, names and nomenclature, but I know they the same planes had a different nomenclature f- for civilian life. 
But anyway, I did get married, and so I talked her into going. She'd never been on a plane before, and lo and behold, she gets airsick, and she never forgot it. And the pilot was even concerned about it. Oh, you'll be fine. So when we came back, she was reluctant to come back, but we had to come back on a plane. There's no way to get home. That's what our ticket was. So we came home, and she got sick again. So she would never fly again. And I had all these wonderful flights with people. And now, of course, we got into the jet age, and I flew a lot of jet planes, you know, to, to go to, to, to get presentations in major cities over the years. So she would never go. And she missed out on a lot of fun. I always wanted her to come with me because she's a great gal. Anyway, she wouldn't go anymore. And so uh, this is a story to tell you what kind of a person she is. One Christmas, she wanted to get a Christmas more. Now, we had a spring up in the South Mountain, uh, mountain up in the Oranges, which is not, and a very famous playhouse there. Some of you people out in the U.S. may have heard of it. It's the, uh, uh, oh, and I like that. I, I pulled a, a real hay brain. I forgot the name of the place. It was the Playhouse. Oh, the Paper Mill Playhouse in Short Hills, New Jersey. It's a very famous place, and a lot of movie stars entertain you. I've seen a number of movie stars who went to a few of the plays, and they're very good and they're very entertaining. And she went there, and right in the back of that area, there's the South Mountain, and there's a beautiful spring up there, and it flows down kind of a steep embankment. So you have to climb up this mountain. Uh, it's kind of hilly, and it was loaded with uh, what's that blue flower you see in the springtime? Uh, blue bells, I don't know, blue bells, no, something else. Forget me not. What's that? Forget me not. Oh, forget me not. That's what you go. Good go. Going, Joe, you got it. Forget me not. They're growing wild all over the place. It's beautiful in the springtime, and it's fed by the spring. And it's an open spring. It's a pipe, and it comes out pretty strong. And everybody was getting water here, and, but they checked it every month to make sure there was no pollution. Eventually, they shut it down because they did find it uh, disagreeable with the people who are drinking, so they shut it down. But before that, I used to go up there, and I think, well, maybe let's try the spring water and see if we can breed some fish in it. So I used to go up there with Bill Jacobs and you. You guys may have seen, uh, of course, uh, Joe knows Bill Jacobs. He was an old-timer that uh, played with Indians when he was a kid, and he saw Buffalo Bill and Annie Oakley, and he also uh, saw one of the uh, uh, Wright brothers when he was a young man up in up in New York State. Yeah, Bill, so, Bill Jacobs was born in uh, 1903, and uh, in 1928, when he was only 25 years old, he was president of the Newark Aquarium Society, which at the time was probably the largest, in terms of members, the largest aquarium society in the United States. So, uh, how many how many members do you think they had? Oh, several hundred. Oh wow! Um, yeah. And and he died. Uh, you know, uh, he died at the age of uh, ninety six. Died on his and, birthday. And. Uh, up until the year before, he was still keeping fish and breeding fish. He was a great fish breeder. But anyway, like Rosario says, he lived through an, an, an unbelievable era, and he knew a lot of people. He knew certain famous fish people, like, for example, uh, is a book, a, a book that was written in 1934, was published in 1934, and it has the very curious title of Life and Love in the aquarium, right? And um, it, it had the uh, unfortunate uh, happenstance of being published the year before William T. Innes published his famous exotic aquarium fishes. So unfortunately, it never really sold well. But the point is, it was written by a gentleman from New Jersey who went by the name of C.H. Peters. And this guy also was the editor of a very well-known magazine at the time called the Home Aquarium Bulletin. Well, here's the thing. For those of us who are historical buffs, sure, we, we see the name 
we know about the book Life and Love in the Aquarium, and we know about the Home Aquarium Bulletin. But Bill Jacobs knew C.H. Peters. He, he, he knew him personally, you know? Mm. So whenever you would talk to Bill, it was just like with Rosario. It was, it was talking with living history. But with Bill, it went back even further because Bill's involvement mm-hmm. in the hobby went back to the 1920s. I mean, practically at the dawn of the organized aquarium hobby in America. Was and that- like Rosario... I mean, they were good friends, you know, Bill and Rosario. Bill was a consummate old-time gentleman. You could not go to his house and leave without lunch, which was served by his much younger sister, who was like 80. <laughs> yeah. and, and you couldn't leave without lunch and taking home some fish. Oh, Impossible, wow. you know. So I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rosario. You were saying. Yeah, no, okay. yeah Bill, Bill was really a great guy. And- yeah. And he was my best friend at the time. We were friends for about 40 years. And I met him at a Daphne upon. That's how we became friends. <laughs> but he, there are some other people that he knew while we're on a subject to Bill. And we'll get back to Jeannie because uh, she's sitting next to me and I want to get on a good side. Or maybe she'll make me some nice spaghetti meatballs one of these days, which is my favorite dish that she makes. Anyway, Bill was also a very close friend of Ida B. Mellon who was the uh, curator of the old uh, aquarium on Battery Park, which is a famous uh, aquarium for many years in New York. And he also was friends, and he was in the Aquarium Society. George uh, S. Myers was one of our preeminent uh, ichthyologists, and he used to belong to the Bergen County Aquarium Society in New Jersey. He's originally from New Jersey, and Bill was a member with him. So he knew he knew George S. Meyer. He used to go home. He got a kick out of Billy. Said, yeah, I knew Georgie pretty well. Hmm. <laughs> but anyway, getting back to Jeannie, Bill and I used to go up to the spring in Short Hills, up to the South Mountain, and get spring water. And we had these five-gallon containers. Well, it was kind of a steep climb, and uh, it was not easy going up with with the uh, going up here with these gallons. And then to fill them, to come down the hill, the five-gallon bucket or water, I think we had plastic ones, too, and come down. And throwing five gallons is pretty heavy, and you're coming down the hill. Oh, yeah. So anyway, Jeannie, Jeannie got in her mind one year. She was going to buy me a Christmas present. So she goes on into the Broad Street, the main hub of the town, and she's looking for a Christmas present. So where does she go? She goes to a, a toy shop. And she says to the guy, I'm looking for the old-fashioned red wagon I used to buy for, for kids. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, we have red wagons here, the old-fashioned one. You guys remember them, too. Remember the old famous red wagon? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I old... still have one. <laughs> yeah, I've got one yeah. for my boy. Yeah, the Red ri- red Rider, I think? Yeah, yeah, yeah Red yeah, Rider, right. Yeah. Yeah, so he says, yeah, I said, we have them here. How old is your boy anyway? Oh, it's not for my... <laughs> My boy, it's for my husband. He got looked, looked at her like she's nuts. You got a red wagon for your husband? Yeah, so he's gonna, she's gonna put the the five gallon containers on here and go down, so I wouldn't have to carry him. Well, that's the kind of a thoughtful woman she was, and I laughed when she told me the story. I mean, because she did come back, and we did have the red wagon. And I remember when my kids were small, we had a boxer, which is pictured. And featured in the in in my book, it shows you a, a picture of, of Chrissy. Anyway, Chrissy used to push the kids on that red wagon, and she'd jump up on the back and push him on a wagon. So the wagon brings back a lot of memories. And I'm trying to think of another funny story that happened with her. Rosario, I have, I have a question. What made you and Bill even want to try spring water? Like, what was the you know as opposed to just oh, using you know, tap water tried, we, or? Yeah, well, we tried all kinds of water, but actually, I didn't really have to try any because my water was fantastic. And was I had Warnike Reservoir, and it was really soft. As I started to say in the beginning of the program, one of the first tetras I ever bred, and this is before I had any real experience with other tetras, was the Neon Tetra. And in those days, that was the thing, man. If you bred a Neon Tetra, man, people would bow down. Oh, here comes the king. Oh, yeah. 
That was the you know, here comes system. the king. What right. right. What yeah. level? What level of water testing did you guys do back then? Because I, I, and you know, forgive me for for being, uh, you know, not knowing my decades and whatnot and when things were were common. But from like a water chemistry testing standpoint, you know, did you guys just kind of know like, well, this is safe potable water, so I'm going to go and use it for my fish, so it will be safe for them. But you didn't really have too much of a gauge of hardness or pH or you know any of these kind of parameters. No, we really that... didn't. I tell you, Randy, we really didn't know. It was just a. And just oh, this water's great. Or then we read a lot of uh, Germans always wrote about pond water. Well, pond water is mostly rainwater, right? And maybe that's the reason why they had a lot of success with it. With the South American really stuff, didn't. maybe. Yeah, right. We didn't. We didn't really know what we were doing. I just had great water, and I take the water out of tap. I put a pair. I knew how to sex the neons. I was had a good eye for that. Mm-hmm. And I would put them in a tank, and the next day there was eggs there. Mm-hmm. And so I have to tell you this story. I think I mentioned it. I don't know if I mentioned it in the first first episode or not. It bears repeating in case nobody heard it. And so um, we had a president of the club at that time, New Jersey Aquarium Society, which had a membership of over 100 people. And we'd get 50, 60, 70 people at a meeting each each month. That's the days before the TVs came out. And we had a lot of people, and we had uh, a lot of the women would bake pastries, and we'd share that. We had a great night out. And so the uh, uh, the, uh, the president of the club, Charlie Fortenbacker, he lived to be in his 90s, too. When I, I met him when he was 90 at Bill's house, he didn't remember me. So I should have told him, too bad you don't have my memory yet, Charlie. You forgot only the good tuna to save, not Charlie Fortenbacker tuna. So anyway, he says to me, How about you giving a talk on neon tetras? How you breed them? I said, No, I never, I never, uh, I never gave a, a talk before, I never gave a presentation. Besides, I said, I'd be frightened to do that. I, I didn't prepare myself, I don't have any notes. I'm not going to do that. He says, Oh, come on, you can do it, there's nothing to it. And nothing to do it for you, I said, but I'm the one who has to do the talking. I, I don't want to do it. And well, he kept it up and he kept it up and finally he convinced me that I'd be okay. Well, I I got up there and I my knees were shaking. I remember it just like it was yesterday. My knees shook. I must have been about, I don't know, 23, 24, newly married. And uh, my my knees were shaking. And uh, so I I, then I started speaking, and I said, and then I started saying, I shouldn't be here because I'm really nervous. I, I, I blurted out that I was nervous about this whole affair, and I really didn't like the position I was put in. Let's set the well, scene. How many, how, many start, pe- how many people were in attendance, Rosario? And I'm so sorry to cut you off. Oh, there, there had to be a good 65, 70 people. There. That's a that's a, a great turnout. Yeah, that's a strong. Before, yeah, that's a strong turnout. Yeah, this is before. Yeah, well, this is before we really had TV. Not too many years after that, the TVs became very uh, prevalent and, and more and more people could afford them. And then there was more and more people decided, well, they're going to stay home because they want to see a certain show. And that's what they did. So I, But I, I started calming down before you know, I breezed through. And I was, man, this is a breeze. I was calm as a cucumber. And it went over very good. So that was the first experience I had with tetras. Then after that, I started breeding serpes, which was another fish that was looked upon as difficult, rosy tetras. I remember I spawned a pair of rosy tetras, which is really considered one of the tough ones. We're talking today, it's not, because they have so many methods. You know, they got uh, ion exchange resin and uh, water softeners of all types give you good quality water, you got peat moss. We know so much more now, but in those days, this was really, we were really struggling. We were, let's see, how does well, this you work? You were a pioneer, you know, like so many yeah. other early breeders. These, they're basically all going into uncharted waters. Right. No pun so, intended. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I, I, I spawned a pair of rosy tetras way back there. And I had such a big spawn, and I don't count fish. I never did. 
There were so many fish in that tank. I said, my daughter, she said, there must be at least a couple hundred in there. Well, I counted them. I couldn't believe it. There was 750 rosy tetras in one spawn. Wow. It was unbelievable. I mean, even today's, by today's, that would be terrific. 750 fish in a single spawn. And rosy tetras, I really don't see good ones. And they used to come out of British Guiana. Most of our fish came out of British Guiana. And now, of course, it's just Guyana. And then you got French Guiana and you got Dutch Guiana. No, French Guiana has hardly been touched. That's where Devil's Island was. It's still there, but I guess just the remnants. It might be, maybe they use it for a uh, visitor's uh, thing. I don't know. But the French Guiana is still uncharted waters. I'm, I'm sure there's stuff there that we don't even know what's there. You know, there's a lot of stuff we still don't know about. Yeah, that, that's tempting to want so, to dive into, but I want to circle back to like the rosy tetra. Can you just kind of break down um, the, some of the different methods that maybe that you tried for, let's say, that particular tetra? Maybe you that either had mild success, no success, and then kind of what what you ultimately did to get you know a spawn of 750 plus uh, a tetras in a tank. Yeah, well, like I said, the water was great, and and, and here's the key though: I had so much live food. That's the key to everything. I had an inexhaustible supply of two effects. We used to get two effects from from around Camden area. There was a guy down there. I used to know his name, and I forgot it. Bill Jacobs knew him personally. And he was in the business of supplying two effects to almost everybody in the East Coast. And he used to go where the Campbell's Soup had their discharge uh, line. And they would discharge their tomatoes products into the Delaware River, which goes through that area. And of course, you've got food going in there, and all you need is a few two effects, and before you know it, they became prolific, and they covered the whole bottom of the river. And I mentioned this in their first episode, a good way to separate two effects from, uh, from, uh, uh, from the sand or mud that you collect used to get the mud and collect it with a potato strainer and then get most of the fines out of it, put it in a bucket and fill the bucket up with this mud where you could see a lot of tube effects. Of course, when you start digging down, tube effects dig in. Their heads are in the, in the soil. They don't have their heads out. It's their tails that's sticking out. Their heads are down into the mud, and they anchor themselves there. They're not like black, black, black worms. Black worms navigate through the water. They they will swim through the water and get in different positions. Two effects usually anchor themselves in a single position and that's where they stay. So we'd get them and then we'd take them home a bucket of mud and we'd cover with about an inch of number three aquarium gravel. That's the big size gravel. Just put about an inch layer and very carefully laid across the top. And then the next day, they would come up from the bottom, and they would crawl through the uh, mud and through the gravel, and that's how you would separate them from the mud. And then you would just pick them up in big balls of tube effects, and and that's what I don't know if, if he did. I think there's another way that he did it. I think they do it with heat too. They he, he may have done it with another method, but this guy had them by the pounds, and you can get a quart of tube effects. For two dollars, can you imagine that? Two dollars. Yeah, that was that was good money back then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I mean, you, you know, the thing is, um, you know, when Rosario talks about these live foods, I, I think for the for the early, you know, aquarists, uh, fish nutrition was a much more important ingredient in successful fish breeding. Than anything about water chemistry, because as Rosario said, they didn't really know that much about water chemistry. And they didn't really, you know, when you look at the old magazines, I can tell you this, there's very few articles about water chemistry. But live food, oh my God, they're constantly talking about how to collect it, how to grow it, what, what kind of live foods to feed your fish. In fact, recently I read an article by the famous William. William T. Innes, who, you know, was from Philadelphia, 
not too far from, you know, uh, New Jersey there where Rosario grew up. And uh, he, he's writing an article about collecting live foods. And he mentions a friend of his who, you know, used to go to Daphnia Ponds and collect Daphnia. And his friend is bemoaning the fact. Now, this is either the late 40s or early 1950 or something like that. His friend is bemoaning the fact that he's ashamed to admit that now he has to buy most of his live food. <laughs> he's, not, he's not collecting them anymore, that he has to buy them, you know? So that just gives you an idea of what Rosario's talking about with this collecting live foods. You know, in today's world, we, we can't even, we, we can't relate to that at all, no. mostly. No, no. Cannot. Yeah, this a- and, and and live foods themselves. I mean, when I was a youngster, starting out in the hobby, you'd walk into any mom and pop, you know, pet shop. Well, that's all there was back then. There weren't any big chain stores, and you you would walk up, and on the counter, right on the counter, they'd have cups of different live foods: uh, blood worms, uh, daphnia, uh, tuba fix worms. Uh, you know. Uh, glass worms, an assortment of different live foods. And that was a regular thing. Now, go ahead. Yeah, so <laughs> I will I, I will I will plug more than one or two. I will I will plug aquarium co-op and actually we will uh, every day we hatch out uh, baby brine shrimp to feed in our shop to our to our tanks right. and um, the I don't want to call it leftover but we always make enough to have I don't know maybe like five six seven grab bags of fresh baby brine shrimp and I've actually got a pretty cool uh, pretty cool shot I took one of my newer lenses into the shop and maybe I'll post it as like the thumbnail but a couple little baggies of of our baby brine shrimp for sale so. If you're if you're local yeah. to us, you know that that you can buy a bit, uh, fresh baby brine shrimp from us, and I don't want to. Yeah. So I don't want to derail too much. But when do you start to see articles about changing water, nitrates, or any of that stuff start to you know to appear in the literature in the magazines? And then you know to maybe this question for Rosario. So we know we know the big emphasis on live foods now. But when did you guys know to change the water, though? Like, if there, you know, you, you probably didn't have the quick little test strips that we have now, and I'm, I would assume the liquid test strips didn't exist then. Like, what, you know, what was the key? Like, when did we know to change water? Uh, well, I can tell you that I, I forget exactly when it was. It was either, you know, very late 1940s, like 1949 or something like that. A gentleman uh, um, that Rosario knows, uh, who Rosario knows very well, uh, Dr. James Axe, who was a uh, curator at the American Museum of Natural History, wrote an article, not in an aquarium magazine, in a nature magazine. He wrote an article called, if I remember the title correctly, The Myth of the Balanced Aquarium. Right. Okay. And this caused great, you know, uproar and upheaval because prior to that, part of the accepted, uh, whatever you want to call it, understanding about aquariums was you didn't need to change water because if you had the right balance of fish and plants, that water would stay wonderful forever and ever. And um, the interesting thing about that is that I also recently read an article by the famous William T. Innes, in which he comments on this article by Dr. Ash. And I can tell you that Innes was very skeptical because he said, I don't know, I've seen people with these, you know, balanced aquariums that Dr. Ash is deriding go do very well, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, in fact, I'm going to stop here but i'm doing my own experiment with a balanced aquarium because i'm interested in that mythology so i have an aquarium set up right now a 10 gallon aquarium that's been set up for a year and a half and i have not done a single water change in there it has no filter nothing you had one you had one set up when i was there is it the same one because that's over a year and a half yes it's doing very well (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's at least two and a half years now, Joe. At least it's got to be. Probably, I have to go. I have to go look at the label because I wrote the date that I set it up, and I put it on the tank. 
Yeah, because that's got, when I came out to it's visit got you. Wild guppies. Yeah. yeah, it's got wild guppies and a lot of water sprite. Mm-hmm. And the guppies are doing fine. The water sprite is doing fine. I've never added a drop of water. It's co- almost completely sealed this mm-hmm. tank. Almost, not quite. You know, but, I think maybe I've topped off a quart or something. But I have not done water changes, and there's no filtration in there. There's more plants than fish. Yeah. So yes, yes. So it, I think after I think after Ask wrote this uh, this very uh, influential article, which got republished and repeated and everything, I think maybe that's when it started to get into people's heads that maybe they needed to do water changes. I don't know, Rosario. Yeah, well, I I have my own theory about this. This is what I do. I try to look at nature, and I lay in bed a lot of times while I did over the years, and I would think and think and think, what happens in nature? Does the water change in nature? It sure does. Mm -hmm. It's a huge of water. What happens in the spring when the rains come? There's a complete change of water from maybe water that's particularly hard or maybe has a great deal of turbidity and the fish are thin. And what triggers the fish off? It's the deluge of water. Now, I've been to some of the parts of the rivers in Brazil, and I've seen the watermark. In fact, I took some pictures of the watermark to show you the volume of water that comes down. And I've I've been in some rains that were so heavy, you couldn't drive. You couldn't see in front of you. In Brazil, we were in the southern part when I was with Weitzman and and Iris and Menezes and and, uh, Stan Weitzman. We had to pull over the side of the road. The water came down in buckets. I mean, you, there's no way you could see where you were going. That's how hard it came down. What does that tell you? That's what triggers the fish off the breed. And when you, I, I proved that by, uh, I remember I had some neon tetras that were about five years old, and I didn't feed them much. I was wondering now they were starting to become more and more uh, um, available. So I said, I wonder if they'll still breed at that age. I started changing large volumes of water, and sure enough, the whole tank would start to spawn. Hmm. So the new water does trigger the fish. They have to have an exchange of new water. I know Bill Vordevink, who used to be the editor for the uh, TFH, and he always prided himself at being pretty smart. Well, he used to read a lot of German because... He was born in Austria, and they speak German there. And so he he would write about stuff that he read in Dots, which was really a preeminent magazine in Europe. Dots had a lot of great uh, scientific stuff in their literature. They had a very good magazine. And he would read that, and of course he could translate it because he spoke fluent German. He was born there. And then he would write it in his own words, and he was a good writer. So it made Bill look like he was really some smart guy. But you know, <laughs> yeah, this, this I think is, he uh, William Vordevinkler, yeah, who was the longtime yeah. editor of Tropical Fish Hobby <clears throat> magazine when Axelrod first started yeah. it. Yeah, Bill didn't live too far from my home, and we used to go to meetings together. And he died at a young age of 56 or something like that. He was way overweight. I don't know if that had something to do with it or what. But anyway, but I, I used to go to meetings with him and. And the one bad habit Bill had was he would uh, try to uh, impress you with his knowledge. And you just don't do that. Don't, don't. Sometimes you can make a fool of yourself. You might, you might say, wow, that guy really smart, a smart guy. But, you're, but the guy was all wet. He, didn't, he, he wasn't right what he said. And somebody might be just a little smarter in that one feel. So silence, the, the old adage, silence is golden, is very, uh, very uh, a sure thing. There's no question about it. It's appropriate. And so I know he, he, he used to boast very heavily about the tank he had. He said, I haven't changed water in that tank for 20 years. Well, the fish looked all right. The water was crystal clear. It had that like brown tinge to old aquarium water. But the fish didn't look like they were full of eggs or anything like that. They would never spawn. You can't let them. They're swimming in their own urine. Of course, isn't a bacteria that will feed on ammonia. And uh, but 
you're not going to be able to spawn those fish. I proved that when I had those uh, neon tetras that were pretty old and, and I wasn't feeding them that heavily and I didn't change water that frequently. Once I, I said, let's see what happens if I change the water. I started changing a great deal of water. Almost every day I change water just to inspire them and to see if I can trigger them off. And sure enough, I come in one day and a whole spawn and a whole tank is spawning. They filled up with spawn. But if you don't change water, they just won't fill up with eggs. You might get an occasional year and there one, but I usually, without water changing, you're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. And that's what triggers them off. No question about it. And that's what I do. I lay in bed at night. And I think to myself, what happens in the wild? Well, it rains. And when it rains, what happens? That's when they spawn. That's when the water goes. It gets very turbid with organics. And that's what triggers off the first food for fry. So everything falls into place for a complete cycle of regeneration of that particular species. That's what you have to start thinking. What happens in the wild? And just apply that to your tanks, and that's what I did my whole life. And I was—it always worked out. If you apply that—that premise that, uh, in your mind, it works. So, like rosy barbs, like what? Uh, so, you're doing good. Wa- you're doing uh, good water husbandry practices, right? So you're changing water. You're you're doing clean water. Um, you're feeding very well. You, you've got access to local Daphnia. You've got access to. Uh, delicious Campbell's soup eating uh, tube effects worms. What about <laughs> what, what about like our you know from from like more of a, a details regarding the fish in terms of uh, colony spawning? Are you are you pairing off male female in a single tank? Um, are you collecting eggs? Like what what were kind of some of those methods um, to to then have success with again that seven hundred and fifty fry in a tank? Those are good questions from uh, Randy about. In the beginning, like when you were doing those rosy tetras or the neon tetras, yeah. did you try? Did you try just pairs, or did you put a group of them together? Oh no, I I always use pairs. Okay. I always use pairs, but I'll tell you, some fish I used in schools. Like a, a, a good example of that is, what are the matabricon types? Like the matabricon lacordi, uh, the matabricon pomeri or so-called amphiloxus, we're not sure of that. That's the black emperor. Yeah. If you put them in groups, they will spawn in groups, and you'll get... And the reason for that is there's a reason for that. Now, here's another thing. When I set... Uh, originally, when I set up a pair of emperors, when I first came in, I got the first ones in the United States from uh, Bill Kyberg. They called him Fred. His real name was William Kyberg, and he was from uh, Columbia. He was, a, he was a, a journalist by trade. I enjoyed writing to him because he had a gift, the way he put his words together that were pretty good. Anyway, I had a nice correspondence with him. He died not too many years later. And uh, it wasn't that much in a way of nice fish from where he was. He was in the mountain area. area and But the, the one nice fish or the three nice fish were the black emperors the rainbow emperor, which is named for me, and the uh, uh, Pomeroy, which is the original one that came in. Well, I bought some Pomeroy from him, and I sent him some money, and I got some Pomeroy. And this guy, uh, it was a, a Frangio Fisheries in Florida, it was actually the first people to bring Emperor Tetris in, and I used to correspond with a guy down there that was the manager. Turned out to be a very nice friend. And uh, I put a pair together because I knew how to sex fish. And by the way, a little tip on how to sex some of your tetras is if you put them in a net and you put a light behind them, or even if you leave, leave them in a, a narrow tank and you put a light behind it, which we call candling, it's like looking at a chicken egg, just what the chicken farmers do. Mm-hmm. They'll put a light behind it. They can see how the chicken is developing. Well, you can do the same thing with tetras. You can put, if you're not sure about this, if there are females or not, if you put them in a, a, sh- a, a narrow tank and you put a light behind it, and if you can't see that well, put a five pair, a five power hood over your eyes so you increase the, the image, make it larger. And you can see the eggs below the uh, air sac, and you can sex them that way. 
and sometimes the eggs are really prevalent. You could see. Oh, There's wow. no question about it. That's a good way to to section. The males, of course, just have the air sac, and there's nothing there, and they're kind of narrow. So after a while, just by experience, uh, you you can very easily distinguish between a male and a female, and the type of eggs they have in the uh, in the oviduct. So anyway, uh, what I did was I set up because I was breeding tetras and pears at that time. I used to put serpes together. These are uh, the fish I'm naming now are the fish that were the most popular at the time in the early 50s. Low lights, uh, Vonrio tetrus or Flamius, uh, Serpes. Rosaceous was a tough fish, so they say. I, and that's the one I had 750 young. And then you had zebras, Danios, you had all the different Danios, and they were easy to spawn. But if, if you put a pair together, usually they spawn, you got a nice spawn out of it. And you had a spawning medium in there, you could have either plants, or some people use, even use uh, plastic uh, yarn or stuff like that. That wasn't good, though, because especially for barbs, it, it would catch behind the oper operculum, and they would get strangled and die. So, oh, wow. Yeah, I never cared for that. Yeah, not good. You're better off with plants, but... And then eventually I went to sphagnum moss. I used, I knew some sphagnum bogs, and I used to get sphagnum moss, and that that would trigger them off the spawn because of the hormones. But anyway, uh, I was putting pairs of of emperors together, only a pair, and then I'd look the next day. I'd have a flashlight. I put my five power hood on, and I'd pick up the plants, and I said, "Gee, it's only like." 10 or 15 eggs. What the hell kind of fish is this? <laughs> they don't, they're, not, they're not like the other ones. The other ones, they, they expend themselves like a serpe catch. You'll see hundreds of eggs on the bottom. So you're sure to, and if your water quality is good and you fed them well, you're going to get a good hatch. But now the emperors were showing only a few young. I said, this is crazy. How the heck can you get these guys going? So then Whiteson did some research on it because I supplied them and that's one of the reasons why he named the fish. Weitzman is Dr. Stanley Weitzman, who he was associated with uh, Stanford. Mm -hmm. oh, he, is that right? He, yeah, but at first, but you know, he learned. He learned. He was a uh, uh, George S. Myers was his uh, his teacher, uh -huh. and his uh, and a guy he learned from, and right. he was associated with him. But no, he was at the Smithsonian when he did all his. Research on him, Adam Rykon. That's when I start sending him the uh, material. I was sending him preserved material, and he and he and so he looked and he, he checked the ovaries, and he said the ovaries only had about 15 eggs in them. He was surprised. So I said, "Well, that must be a common thing." Well, what What does that mean? And then I thought to myself, "No, I know what it means. I was able to put two and two together. Nobody else figured it out. I did." reason why there's only a few eggs is because if they eat and there's a lot of food during a specific, like the, in the spring months or when there's a lot of live food occurring from the organic that washed in from the rainfall, now they have a lot of food. So they're going to be like chickens. They must, they must breed like chickens. Where a chicken will only lay one egg a day. I don't know if a lot of people know that. And what, what the chicken farmer will do, will collect the eggs. Put them in a refrigerator and keep them there for about 20 days until he gets a nice clutch of eggs, and then he'll put them under the hen. Now, when he puts them under the hen, they're still fertilized, but they're not they're not splitting and they're not developing. So once you take them away in the refrigerator and you put them under the hen, then they start to split and they start cell division, and then you get a chicken forming, and now you'll get a nice little flock of of young chickens. That'll hatch out all together. They'll grow evenly. But if you go one by one, you could see but the chicken's not going to sit on a, <laughs> on an egg. And then they will give me another one. I need another egg to sit on. And before you, know, you sit on eggs for, for days. But since the farmers knew that the eggs will take such and such an amount of time to hatch, but they waited until they had enough of them. And they went. So that's what I applied to the emperor tetras. I said, since only throw in a few eggs. The best thing to do is let's try a group of them. Let's 
breed them in groups. And if we have just a couple of males, say two or three males, and five or six females, now if you've got five or six females, and they only, so uh, say you have uh, uh, 10 females or five females, and they only throw 10 eggs, well, they're not all going to hatch, but now you've got 50 or 60 eggs that are going to be available to you if they hatch. Now you've got a little bit of a group coming up, and they don't bother them. They will eat them if they get to them, but usually if you have them in a nicely planted tank like the sphagnum, use a lot of leaf litter on the bottom or a little species that break off, which I use the sphagnum. That's what I did it with originally when I got, at that time I was using sphagnum moss for a spawning medium. And before, you know, I said, boy, here, look at this. And I'd look and I'd hit the side of the tank with my finger and you could see them darting all over the place. So after a while, you'd get maybe 50, 60 in a tank and then you, you would harvest them. You'd go in and harvest them because they'll eat their smaller siblings up. And that's how you do it. And that's what I found out back in the early 60s by spawning them in groups. Now you got a chance to get quantity and not just one or two of them and tie up a tank for, let's say, 10 or 15 fish. You don't want to tie up a whole tank just for that. So that's the way you would do it, which I found out. And I found out there's a lot of tetras that will spawn that way. They only throw a few eggs. So when you see you're only getting a few eggs, then the next step is to put them in spawn in groups. I found that out with Racoviscus, which is kind of a rare fish from the southeastern part of Brazil. In fact, I brought some Racoviscus back, which was new, and I alerted Weissman to it, and he, he named it Racoviscus gracilisteps. And I still had some. And that's another story we can talk about. It. I'm going to talk about that. Well, episode. since you mentioned uh, Weissman, tell, tell us how you brought the Lacordae Emperor Tetra to his attention. Tell tell us how that came about. Well, I got the uh, I got the specimens from uh, I bought some from uh, from Kyberts. Now Jim Seiberg was the name of the manager in Franjo's Fishery. It was a big fish farm, and they imported fish. And I got to be friends with. Him. I never met him in person, but he was a very nice man, and he really tried to help me because I uh, I sent Kyberts some money. To get the uh, rainbow tetra. He told me about, and he called it a rainbow tetra, but he, he, he called them, he didn't know what to call them. He just said they're rainbow tetra, the red eye emperor. That's what he, he didn't know what to call them. So here I thought that I was a smart guy, right? And I wasn't. That's why it doesn't pay to make a remark because it could be wrong and you'll be embarrassed. Well, I thought I had the answer. I thought it was the Matabricon amphiloxis because. Uh, Dr. Myers wrote an article, used to write a, a column in the Aquarium Journal each month, and he would call it Hint to the Fish Importers, and he would give you a hint as to what, uh, what you should think about trying to bring in. I know he had the annulatus before the annulatus was even thought about, which is a beautiful little uh, killie, has a, an array of, 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 of beautiful colors. And he had that picked out long ago. He, I think he called it a rocket killie because it had, it looked like it had flames coming out of its tail. So I think he was the one that called it a rocket killie. I'm pretty sure I'm right on it. It's been so long. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So he was calling this new kind of emperor tetra, he was he calling was, it nematobricon amphiphylloxis? No, I'm the one that told him that. That's what I'm saying. Uh, I was uh, stupid. I was stupid. I was the stupid one. Of course, here I thought I was smart, right? Because I read that because uh, uh, Dr. Myers wrote in his column, there's another emperor called Amphiloxus. So here with that information, I said, well, Myers, he's, 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 he, he knows what he's talking about. Well, it turns out that Amphiloxus was not the red-eye one. And when the red-eye one came in, uh, Stan Weitzman, I sent him some specimens because all the specimens that I got came in with Ick, and they all died. So I said to uh, Jim Thiel, I said, I want, the, I want the specimen. So he sent them to me, and I sent them to Weitzman, and Weitzman did the research on it. And he says, no, this is a new species. And he says, I'm going to name it after you. That's how I got the name, because <laughs> I, I supplied him with all the, uh, all the type specimens. Oh, nice. And, and that's how it was named. So I, was, I remember it, because I came home from work, 
you know, and Jeannie was always said, every day was Thanksgiving Day in my house. She's such a great cook. I came in and the kids were all sitting at the table. I come in from work and uh, would sit down. And then she says, I said, hon, any mail? She said, sure. I got a letter from Stan. I opened it up and I said, I had a big grin on my face. I said, look at this. I said, Daddy's going to have a fish named after him. And I go, hey, Ray. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got it. And it was because I supplied him with all the type specimens that were that I thought I was going to get live ones from Jim Thiel and Franjo's Fisheries, but they came in with a bad case of Vic, and they all died, and he apologized for it. And, and here I thought this was a true Ampelopsis, and it turns out it wasn't. It was a new species, so that's how I got the name. Nice, that's cool. It was, it was, it was, yeah, it was very nice, and I think it was nineteen seventy-three. I think that's the year it happened, and I tell you, I was really elated because you know, they're a little schmo like me. I'm just an aquarist, and not everybody gets the name fish named after them. That's in that field. It's usually somebody that's attached scientifically. I never went to college. And I didn't have any association with a scientific organization. So to have a living thing named after you, which is, you know, it's forever. It's yeah. a nice so, and, feeling. And Dr. Dr. Weitzman uh, just also, Dr. Weitzman also has a tetra named after him. You know, the black morpho tetra, Psiliocharax yeah. Weitzmanite. Well, I have a story about, I have a story about that. I can tell it now because... Everybody's dead. I can tell the story. <laughs> there was a, let's just say, I won't name names, but there was a, an ichthyologist that was a little on a jealous side of Weitzman. And he's a very well-known ichthyologist. You would all know, but I'm not going to name him. because uh, he's not around anymore. And so I'm not naming any names, but he said, I'm going to name this fish after you. But he had a female. He figured, well, it's just a drab looking fish. All he had was females for a type specimen. So he named it after Stan, but then when, when everybody saw the, the wild fish, the, what they really looked like, wow. And I think this might have been. Yeah, uh, that uh, Weitzman eye, that Poe uh, Celio Charix Weitzman eye, that the male is spectacular. It's a stunning fish. Oh. Stunning fish. Yeah. It really is. And it's a very hard tetra to breed, but it's. Uh, yeah. He has a little red egg. And, and the funny thing about it is the tetras are so interesting because I think it's really a great group of fish, and I'll tell you why. Uh, cichlids are either mouth brooders or they're egg layers on rocks or whatever. And But when you look at the tetras, look at all the different tetras and their modes of reproduction. I mean, some of them, uh, some of them uh, uh, for instance, the, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of any of it now, any, uh, what's the one that jumps out of the water? I, I, I know the fish like my own. I just have a, 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 a brain fog right now. Um, anyway, it jumps out of the water and sprays her eggs on a hanging leaf. Pirulina. Yeah. Pirulina spilata. Not spilata. The, uh, oh. uh, what's the name? Not spilata is a different fish. That's a, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, I, yeah. Anyway, it's a, a, no, Copina Arnaldi. I'm sorry. Yeah. So Pino Arnaldi, that's the fish right. we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they're very interesting. Look at look at the different modes of reproduction with some of these tetras. They really every one of them are so different. They 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 spray their eggs above water and put them on on a leaf hanging from a tree, and then the male will every once in a while go up there and water them, and he'll stay there, standing guard until they hatch. And when they hatch, they slip and fall into the water. It's amazing when you think about it. Where did they learn how to do that? why and yet so many other ones scatter their eggs and then there are some that breed like cichlids they spawn on rocks and uh and some of them are very strange in their modes of reproduction so they're really an interesting group and not only that but it's an old it's really a relic fish it's an old fish it's been with us for millions of years yeah I... so they do have some crazy looking you have some crazy ways of reproducing. I like uh, I, I like tetras a lot for their you know some of the more practical kind of results in that um, 
you know, you breed them, in which, to be fair, I have not bred my tetras yet, but I've got a couple of species that, um, that I'm working with in the fish room or not really working with, but I will be. Um, but when you do breed them, they're pretty easy to take it, you know, to get rid of. Um, they're not, you know, it's not like a, a very specific cichlid, you know, where it's only a certain type of customer that can take them. Like they typically do very well as a community fish. So, you know, you breed all these fish, like the last thing you want to do is have to sit on, oh man, I just bred 120 of a given fish and now nobody wants them, right? Like that's not a good feeling for anybody where tetras, I mean, they, you know, a dozens can go into a single person's community tank. Um, and I would imagine that most local fish stores outside of your big box ones will take healthy, locally bred tetras, um, at least the one time, right? Like if you happen to breed an obscure tetra that, you know, maybe doesn't look as great as some of the more common tetras, that might be kind of a one-time thing, but you know, they're, they're, they're pretty easy to get rid of. And I think for somebody like that, you know, that is an aspiring breeder, um, you know, pick ones that are common or pick some that are actually, you know, fairly attractive so that if you do have success with them, you won't have a hard time getting rid of them unless you want to keep hundreds of tetras at your home. And that's cool too. Yeah, by the way, speaking of tetras, Joe has seen this. Uh, I got a, uh, from Danny Katz, he's a good friend of Joe's of mine, and he's a member of our Leica group. He sent me a, uh, a presentation that, uh, uh, what's his name now? He's a good friend of mine. I'm having a brain fog. What's his name up in... Oh, Canada? Oliver Lucanus. Oliver Lucanus. Uh. And uh, I met Oliver a number of years ago. He's, he really gets around. Oliver has done a lot of stuff. He made a pretty interesting presentation on 30 new tetras uh, that were discovered in the Mato Grosso, which is the southeastern part of Brazil. It's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. You yeah, can see it on YouTube. Yeah. Go on YouTube and see it. 30 new tetras. And I'll tell you, there's some real, the, the one towards the end, it, had, it was a jet black fish with white fins. Oh, man, did that look stunning to see a tank full of them. So there's some real new, there's always new stuff being found. And it's a shame, he said, because that area is being developed, and he doesn't think it's going to be around long. But here's the here's the clincher, though. We may see them, and uh, Oliver has a, a good point, because the Asians are not reluctant to spend big money on fish. The Americans are. I mean, Americans will spend big money on cichlids, but when it comes to tetras, if you want the extra dollar, I don't want That's too much money, and Hem and whore, whereas the Asians, they're going to get it because they know once they get it, they can breed the hell out of it, and it can make it available. So, um, and of course, I don't have fish anymore. I have a few, and my friend Mike McNamee comes over because of what I had, and I was uh, became a little handicapped, and I haven't been to the basement since last September, and I, I'm still a little frightened to go down the stairs because I walk with a walker. And uh, so it's a little disheartening for me to give up like I did, but I still love the hobby. But when I see those tetras, I think I got to come out of retirement and get started <laughs> again. Um, yeah, I, I tell you, these fish are really, there's some stunning new tetras there. And we, we've only touched the tip of the iceberg. There's so many things in Brazil, you know, the Brazilians are, they're a little on the fickle side. They, uh, they, they, they want to preserve your stuff yet they're not doing anything about it. And while we're speaking, I get a chance to talk about it. That's what I wanted to talk about on this episode. I don't think I touched on the subject last time, but it's very interesting. I uh, I don't maybe you can correct me, Randy. Did, did we talk about the uh, uh, the uh, the real dosi? In, in above Rio de Janeiro, did we, we speak about the? We have not, but I think Rosario, I might have to hold you to part three. Okay. I think we might need you to put more through already. I think we, <laughs> we're at a, we're at about an hour. Uh, yeah, we just hit an hour right now. Yeah, so I think for uh, wow, for, that I, went fast. Yeah, I know. Hey, time flies when you're having fun, man. Um, I I always get I I get these feelings of apprehension, like, oh man, are we going to be able to make it to an hour with any of my guests? And then you know the con- <laughs> the conversation starts flowing, and it's like, oh man, we're already at like 55 minutes. Like we got to start right. wrapping this I'm thing just, up. Yeah. So, I'm but just no, getting let's start it, and we're. <laughs> When Rosario gets started telling so all his, you know, uh, memories and, and and as you can tell, I'm sure your listeners are getting this idea that Rosario remembers 
you know, like he said, he's going to be 93 in March. He remembers details of things that, are, for given how many years have passed, it's just incredible. And he goes into, whenever you have a conversation with him, be assured you will get every detail of every memory. Okay. Oh, I love it. I love it. That makes it, hey, that um, makes my job that much easier when you guys are going to, yeah, you know, so Rosario's going to go into those details. And, and so you when are we going to make the next? When are we going to make the next episode tomorrow? Well, hey, I'm so well. Funny enough, I'm actually. I don't know if you if you know if you guys know this or not, but uh, we're going to be going down to Peru in uh, next week. So are you? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So this will be this will be my second trip down to Iquitos, and we'll be going on the. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, we'll be going. Oh yeah, yeah. God, what are the rivers? I saw, I saw your uh, I saw your YouTube videos about your first trip. Yeah. Very yeah, nice. so that was that was a lot of fun, and uh, you know, yeah. so it's been two years yeah. now. So we'll be going yeah, in. Good. Uh, oh, good for you. Yeah, good but for you. we yeah, good luck to you. Yeah, we might try to be able to squeeze one in next week, but if not, definitely when I get back. And so I think we'll leave everybody with that, uh, you know, that on yeah. the with the with the foreshadowing of our next conversation. Yeah. We'll start off with that yeah. um, the real. Uh, what what did you call yeah, it, Rosario? The real dosi, the real dosi catastrophe. Okay, okay. so we'll start. Yeah, we'll start. Very interesting story about that. Nice. So we'll start and, with that one. By then. the way, uh, yeah. And by the way, Randy, I, I just have to mention this because, you know, your listeners, you have a wonderful audience, and I want all your listeners to know that Rosario and I very much appreciate all the kind comments that they make after they listen to the podcast and we certainly do keep yeah. them coming guys yeah, we, we, really <laughs> we enjoy it we love your audience i delete yeah. all the i delete all the mean ones <laughs> i'm joking <laughs> uh, no i'm joking i'm joking no i would say you know right. this is this is you know this is aquarium history and this is somebody that has been in the hobby for you know rosario's been in there for decades and decades and you've got many 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 stories to tell and um, you know, there's no, like, there's no, we have an arbitrary limit of kind of like one hour. You know, we, I, I think, uh, I, I have some activities I actually need to get to with the family. So that's kind of a hard stop yeah, for me, boy. but there's, there's really boy. no, you know, there's no fixed variable cost to this thing. Like I have the equipment, we all have telephones and there's nothing stopping us from doing this. Right. And if people are like, ah, I don't know if I want to hear part 10 of Rosario and Joe talk, well then, yeah, that's okay. You don't have to listen to that one, you know. You can you can go to the next one or or whatever. So it's um, you know, this isn't taking up but I like. I think you're creating a. I think you're creating a very unique uh, oral history of our hobby by having Rosario on. So uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I well, I'm also yeah. selfish too, and I want to learn all the tricks that Rosario knows. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wait to see my. It's wait, not wait, all altruistic. When you when you see my hat trick when I pull out a fish tank out of a hat. Oh nice. I yeah. bet you probably could breed okay. fish in a hat, Rosario. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> I've never tried it. Get you I yeah, think I think we can get you a five gallon cowboy hat and you could probably breed fish in there. Yeah. I know. I, I had a lot of That'll be that'll be okay, another claim Randy. to fame. All right, gentlemen, this has been fantastic. I mean, it's it's a blast talking with you guys. It, it really is, and I've uh, definitely learned a lot right. on this on this episode. And Rosario, man, I, I appreciate it. Joy, I appreciate it so much. And uh, yeah, till till next time, guys. Thank you. All right. Okay, Randy. Randy. We'll talk to you again.